If we are going to recover from the pandemic, and I certainly hope Boston students do, it will depend on folks outside the Boston Public Schools chipping in, because this is a problem that's going to affect the entire community. In March 2020, students across the country shifted to an unprecedented learning model as they logged onto their computers to attend classes on Zoom, forcing educators to quickly rethink how to effectively teach students in this new paradigm. As our education institutions worked to shift their models, the longstanding flaws and inequities in our system were put on full display. Now, two years later, we're grappling to fully understand the impacts of this disruption to student learning. What has happened to our students over the past two years? What have we learned from this experience and what changes are necessary in order to prepare today's students to succeed in this fast-changing world? I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. Over the next few weeks, we'll be talking with education advocates, researchers, and change agents working to rethink our education system and provide better opportunities and outcomes for all students. Today, in person, I'm joined by Tom Kane, Walter H. Gale Professor of Education and Economics at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Tom was a guest on this podcast just as the pandemic was beginning, and we're excited to have him on again, this time to talk about his new research on student learning loss across the country. Hi, Tom. Hi, Jill. Uh, Thanks for having me here. Just to kind of level set, you have spent a bunch of time researching what has happened in education since everybody got locked down and schools went essentially virtual for a while. And so your research is on public school education in the country. Can you just kind of give us an overview of what you've learned about what happened and where we are today? Sure. So we assembled the data from 29 states plus D.C. on how students performed on the June 22 state assessments. Okay. And here in Massachusetts, people had been reading about declines in proficiency on the MCAS. But I think for most parents and policymakers, it was hard to make sense of, like, what's a 10 percentage point decline in proficiency mean? Right. And it was hard, I think, for anybody. And so what we did was, as soon as the National Assessment of Educational Progress data came out, we put all the state scores on the same scale. Mm -hmm. And then we reported the losses, not in terms of test score points, but in terms of the typical amount of growth students would have made from one year to the next. Mm -hmm. And I think that is critical because it just gives parents and policymakers a much better sense of the magnitude of the losses. So here in Boston Public Schools, the loss for the average student is around, you know, three quarters of a school year. So they just lost it, didn't get it, were set backwards. So it's less about they forgot stuff. Right. You know, I'm sure some kids forgot stuff, but it was mostly not that. It was just that they weren't learning as much as they typically would. And so... And in particular subjects, it's really important. Like math. math, Right. In math in particular, if you don't learn the prerequisites for calculus... Mm -hmm. And so you don't take calculus in high school. Right. You're very unlikely to ever have a career as an engineer right. or, or lots of other professions. And so these achievement losses have consequences 
many parents, when they hear about test score losses, it gets you know mixed up with their feelings about meritocracy, college admissions, you know, too much testing in schools. Like it, it right. they hear about test scores and they have they might have reasons to have a, an ambivalent response to right. test scores. Right. But in this case, they should be thinking, no, these are reflections of concrete skills that my child has not learned as of this age. And if they don't learn these skills by the time they graduate from high school, they're going to be at a disadvantage in their in college and in their careers. And so, and this is this happened both in the reading scores and in the math scores. And just practically speaking, you as a parent expect that your teacher and the schools have set out a series of objectives that a student is going to meet in any given year. You kind of trust that, right? Because we're not, you and I were discussing this before, you're not looking at the syllabus you know, on a weekly basis to see how far your child has progressed as compared to what the teacher thinks they should be doing over the course of the year. But what you're saying is in in this case, kids just missed 75% of that learning. Of what they typically would have learned over that period. So you were then entering the next year as a student without some of the scaffolding that you need in order to do well. And Jill, one thing that I've heard a lot of people comment on is, oh, the losses are bigger in math than in reading, which is true. Mm -hmm. People shouldn't then jump to the conclusion, oh, so we should focus on math. Reading is less of a problem. And here's why. The typical growth is slower in reading. Mm. And so like if, if we shut schools down for five months, I'd expect bigger losses in math than in reading. Uh-huh. But that misses the fact that it's going to take me the same five months to make up for the losses in math right? and the losses in reading. Like it'll, progress is slower in reading. But this isn't also, this doesn't apply only if you do or don't want to be a chemist or an engineer. This is like practically speaking, as you graduate into the world, what you're saying is our kids are at a significant disadvantage as compared to the kids who went through school and graduated in 2019. Right. And and so parents might say, oh, gosh, like, since everybody's in the same boat, won't— The level you know, playing field. But actually, it's not a level playing field because the losses were much larger in certain parts of the country th- mm-hmm. than others. But also, even within Massachusetts, the losses in Boston, Fall River, Lowell, Revere— were substantially larger than they were in Newton, Lexington, Andover, Wellesley. Like, and so, is that because kids were out of school? Or so what, actually, we... I believe it was largely, there were some differences in the length of school closures, but I, I think that was not the primary thing. Mm. In other research we'd done, we found that when schools were closed for the same amount of time, Losses were much larger in high-poverty schools. Mm -hmm. And when you think about it, we're still looking into some of the causes, but you can imagine what some of them might be. Access to broadband at home. Right. Access to a a parent who has the kind of job where they can work from home and supervise what's going on. Right. Other kinds of disruptions in the family, illnesses and and so forth. Well, certainly we heard uh, about a number of cases where the 
the parents still had to go and work, and so yeah. they locked their kids, you know, inside the house for safety. But the the older child was basically babysitting yeah. the younger child, and so right. there you can imagine in that circumstance that there's learning loss happening. Right. right, and so like it's not hard for me to imagine that in the spring twenty three or the spring twenty four assessments. Newton, Lexington, Andover, they'll be back to where they were in 2019, Mm. but without like major investments and catch-up activities. Just given the magnitude of the losses, again, like three quarters of a year or more in in some of the higher poverty districts around Massachusetts, we're not going to make up for losses like that with, you know, having a few extra days of instruction or providing on-demand tutoring to a few percentage of kids. Like, this is going to require, like, a much more substantial effort in order to make sure that these losses don't become permanent. And I think that should be our collective focus over the next couple of years is to to make sure these losses don't become permanent. And there's a lot of funding that's been put out in place to support that turning around the negative things that happened during COVID. How do you see that money being spent? Do you think districts are f- focused on the right things? Are we spending it on all kids or some kids? What's what's happening, in your opinion, both positively and negatively to counterbalance what's happened? So you're right, Jill. So from the beginning of the pandemic through the American Rescue Plan, the federal government provided about $190 billion nationally for K-12 education to help with catch-up. Which went to the districts. Most of it went to the districts. Mm-hmm. Some of it went to the states, mm-hmm. um, but 90% of it went went to districts. With and, no or little direction on how so to spend So very it, right? little direction, yeah. and he, he, here's why. So the American Rescue Plan passed in March of 21. Mm-hmm. At that point, nobody knew the, what the magnitude of the losses would be. We didn't have the evidence yet. The other... Huge concern back in March of 21 was about shortfalls in state and local revenues. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot of flexibility built in. In fact, there was not the same maintenance of effort requirement. That, mm-hmm. that Meaning you so, didn't have to report on? Well, it, it meant that you could even replace, mm-hmm. use the, the federal dollars to replace state and local revenue. Oh, I see. So there was a huge amount of flexibility. But in this state's case, we had a surplus. Yes, right. right. And so people didn't know that. So in the law, districts were only required to spend 20% on academic recovery. And which is why there's so many great buildings being erected right right now. Right. And yet, I'm not aware of a single district that is going to be able to make up for the losses by spending 20% of the federal money. They shouldn't take that as a suggestion. Right. It's a minimum right. that is way below what most districts are going to need. Right. You asked Jill just a moment ago about like, so how are districts thinking about it? Here, here's the most frustrating thing. Many of them are planning some catch-up activities. So, mm-hmm. you know, Boston has a contract with paper, which is a tutoring company. Mm -hmm. They also are planning, okay, we're going to expand summer school. Right. There is some evidence that both of those kinds of interventions, you know, potentially have an impact on student achievement. But but what nobody's doing is saying, okay, how much of those things do we need to do? And starting with what's the magnitude of our loss? And then 
what proportion of students would we need to give summer school to to make up for that loss? And here are just some numbers. Like So this past summer, about 30% or so of Boston Public Schools students participated in summer learning programs. Mm-hmm. That's right. much higher than in the past. I think the city, you know, was celebrating that, mm-hmm. you know, right. 30%. Right. But let's do a little math on that. Okay, right. so prior research suggests that summer school generates the equivalent, e- even, you know, generously, the equivalent of about a quarter of a school year's worth of growth. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's multiply 30% times a quarter. That's 075 that's exactly one-tenth of the learning loss in Boston. Right. So, like, nobody is doing the calculation of, okay, <laughs> what proportion of kids are we going to need to get to go to summer school? What proportion of kids will we have to serve with vacation academies and tutors and so forth to add up to three-quarters of, of a year's worth of growth. Well, no one's no one's thinking or leading or managing that way. No. And you're an economist, so you think that way. You can't help but think that way. <laughs> <laughs> but what you're saying makes perfect sense. If you, the only way that you can set goals is by doing the math. We've watched this city and this district not do the math. Maybe, I don't know. I, I, wa- I sometimes wonder if we don't do the math because then we would have to set goals and then we would know whether or not we hit them. So part of the reason here, I think, is that problem that we started out with, that they just haven't been told the magnitude of the loss that translates easily into action. So they've they've been told, okay, there's a 10-point decline in mm. proficiency. But what does that mean? And that's part of the reason why we reported out the losses the way we did was it lends itself to the kinds of calculations we want more districts to do. In what districts have been told by the state, there's no sense of proportionality. Right. Like, so there's a, you know, even the, if there were no tr- trees nearby, the Washington Monument w- would look like a garden obelisk. And that's why the proportionality of saying, okay, well, what percent of a typical year's learning mm-hmm. does this represent? That's the kind of thing that will help people, like, get their minds around, like, the magnitude of the loss. So talk about it at the individual level, because I'm curious about how parents could be involved in advocating. Is it easy for parents to understand whether or not their kids are suffering from learning loss? Jill, this is a really important point. In the polls I've seen nationally, and I and I know you've done some work here in Boston, but in, in the national polls... 90% or more of parents think their child is on grade level. Right. And that's obviously not the case. No, it's significantly not the case. And when you think about it, parents should know that they have very limited information yeah. about where their kid is and that they should be very self-conscious about what they do know. So what they know is their child is happy to be back in school, hopefully. Yeah. They might know that their grades are decent. Mm-hmm. What they don't know is that, okay, it's November 10th, and where is my child on the syllabus this year, Mm -hmm. and how does that compare to where this teacher was in this same class November 10th of 2019 before the pandemic? It's a nuanced question that I I would have never thought to ask. Right. And I I can't imagine most parents even having the relationship with the teacher to ask that question and then having the fortitude 
to ask that right. question. Yeah. And so like that's part of the reason why we hope that by publishing these data we can get more people to be asking hard questions at school committee meetings about like right. so what is our plan? Show me on paper. Yeah. So don't just tell me what the district is planning to do. Right. Show me on paper why you think that that will be sufficient to help kids catch up. Show yeah. me like okay. Show me the research on the effects of summer school. Show me the research on the effects of tutoring. And then do the multiplication because what they're going to discover when they do that is most of these plans are nowhere near enough. And right. here's why it matters to figure that out now. So people might just say, a school district might say, well, gosh, we've already got our plan for 22-23 mm -hmm. for and maybe even for summer of 23 Let's wait and see how the spring 23 MCAS results are before right. we consider right. revisiting right. our plan. If they do that, they can do that. But here's the problem with that is that the MCAS scores from spring 23 won't be back until like August or September, mm -hmm. probably late September of 23, yeah. when school districts will have begun their second and final year of using these, you know, these federal dollars for catch up. Right. And so the time to start to revisit the plan is now, not a year from now when it'll be too late and a lot of the dollars will have been spent. Now that you've helped them understand the math, they should use the math very practically to look at their current plans and then project forward. Yes. I, I do have a question though, because we're talking about the same people who... As far, as far as I understand it, there have been historically, so 2019 and before, we were talking about how the average student in some of these poor districts was two years behind, Yeah. right, in grade, grade levels, right? Yeah. And the question, the important question that parents should have been asking their teachers is, is my child on grade level? Parents don't know to ask that question. And so parents don't become really aware that their kid is way off grade level in these cases until they're in high school and they're thinking about college. And so these are the same people who have kind of, we've talked about this two-year off grade level for years and years and years. The same folks who were kind of in charge of coming up with plans for rectifying that are in charge of spending this ESSER money successfully to combat learning loss. I'm just trying to understand how, why, what are their motivations for getting this one right? So I think we have way underestimated this challenge of bandwidth. Like, mm. so district staff were already struggling planning for this school year. Mm -hmm. And in the typical school year, it's not like there's tons of extra bandwidth for thinking about normal school programming. Right. right. And yet, okay, we need that. Yeah. But we also need people to be thinking, okay, what are we going to be doing way beyond the typical school day to help kids catch up over the next couple of years? And there's a real shortage of bandwidth. And that's where I think the mayor's office, other community organizations mm -hmm. around Boston could help by saying, okay, let us bear some of the costs of planning some of these outside-of-school efforts. We should be planning now for a major increase in summer programming for the summer of 23 and the summer of 24. Does it seem likely 
because this is kind of your, your suggestion, does it seem likely that the mayor's office, any mayor's office, might pick this up and say, okay, you know, we'll allocate ESSER funding to you if you want to pick a number. Like, you know, Organization X, you're going to cure 10% of learning loss in this student population. Tell us what that means and and sign up for it, and we'll pay you against how much you succeed, right? Because it's just a numbers game, it sounds like. If we tutor kids over a certain period of time. And we talked to Sal Khan about this recently as well. He's he's seeing this like very substantially. He has a packaged product that he's selling into public school districts that, you know, is multi-month, but it does impact learning loss. Like they are successfully right. you know, shifting gears for kids. If we are going to recover from the pandemic, and I certainly hope Boston students do, it will depend on folks outside the Boston public schools chipping in mm-hmm. because this is a problem that's going to affect the entire community. Based on the test score declines that we've seen, we should expect declines in earnings, declines in college going, mm-hmm. increases in teen motherhood, increases in incarceration rates. So it, it's in everybody. How can everybody. we tie all of that together? I, I so was curious about that yes, part. Of so it. here's how we did that, Jill. Yeah. So we're not just speculating yeah. about this. What we did was we went back to the historical NAEP data, the same data that just recently came out, and we said, okay, in the states that saw big increases in the past, Mm. what happened to the kids born in those states? Like North Carolina, not a lot of people know this, but North Carolina between 1990 and like the early 2010s, saw like a whole standard deviation increase in in student achievement. Not everybody out there knows what a standard deviation is, but it was they moved the whole state by more than the black-white achievement gap was in 1990. Hmm. And there were s- several other states. Massachusetts saw a, about a 0.6 standard deviation rise. Hmm. So there are a number of states that saw big increases over yeah. that period. And so then we said, okay, Let's look within those states at the more recent birth cohorts versus the older birth cohorts and just look, how did their outcomes change? And we measured it in the census. And you saw that in those states that saw big increases in NAEP scores, Mm -hmm. there were substantial improvements in income, educational attainment, college enrollment, declines in teen motherhoods, declines in incarceration rates. Mm you can then project that the reverse is true. Well, that that is what we're projecting, but yeah. of course we won't know right. for sure until people are finished school, but we should at least we should be looking at the his, what happened in historically when these things went up yeah. to anticipate what are the likely consequences now that they're gone back down again. Did we then do kids, at least in this city, a huge disservice by graduating them without... We graduated kids regardless of their MCAS score. We just sent kids out into the world, graduated. And it sounds like probably with some significant learning loss. So what should we be doing about, you know, those those? So that's... uh, Jill, I think that is a great question that is not sufficiently on the radar screen is, okay, what about the folks who have recently graduated? Because it was worse than you just described. It was that when they got out, college enrollment rates really declined. Plummeted, yeah. And so there are thousands of kids out there who 
have no adult whose job it is to make sure that they reconnect or right. that they learn what they didn't get a chance to learn during their you know, junior and senior year of high school. Right. They're out. They're nobody's responsibility. Right. And yet I think the state could be tracking them down. They could easily go into their data and say, okay, which kids yeah. graduated in the last couple of years? Right. Which kids do we know showed up at one of the four-year colleges or two-year colleges around the state or even nationally? And then which kids never showed up there? And like, do we have any contact information for them? And can we reach out to them and just say, like, here, do you need any help applying for college? Do yeah. you need any help yeah. applying for financial aid now that the pandemic yeah. um, is tapering down? And because if nobody takes action over and above what, you know, the normal course of business, they should remember that all those kids are going to fall through the cracks. Nobody. Right. It's no adult's job to worry about them. Right. And it's not going to be a flaming ball of fire. And so there's no emergency. It's just that we did not do well. It'll be a but, hidden disaster. Right. So how are you finding people responding to your research? And I mean leaders, like leaders on school boards and school committees and mayors and governors. How are they reacting to your findings? And are they scratching their heads and trying to think about how they can take action, or does it feel like the kind of thing where they're, because there is not a raging emergency, there's no crisis, there's no blaring crisis, and it's it's a difficult thing, I think, even for parents to understand. How are they reacting? So it's a great question, and there's been a mixture of reactions. I think in some districts, they're saying, holy cow, like we knew, obviously, everybody knew there were losses, yeah. and what we've helped them do is recognize, okay, what's the scale of the effort that's going to be required to catch up? Yeah. And so in some places, there's been the, okay, so, you know, help us figure out what's the set of things we should be doing. Yeah. What I haven't seen yet, and which I think is going to be necessary, is what I was referring to before, mayors and other civic leaders getting involved. Because... We can't see this as just the district's problem because the right. for all the reasons you described before, the district is going to struggle to make up for these losses by themselves. And the district doesn't necessarily see kids a majority of time. Yeah, there's an l- awful lot of out-of-school time right. that other organizations could, could be them. helping with. Yeah. And the reason why the mayor could help is by helping to play more of a coordinating function mm-hmm. a- across the various public agencies as well as, you know, nonprofit organizations. They should have the macro data, it sounds like. They should know, like the the mayor of this city should know how much learning loss, where is it, who was affected by it, and then marry that to, okay, what organizations can help cure for it. Ideally, the the governor, where there's a lot of, it's not just the poor kids in Boston that lost a ton of ground. Same thing was true in Fall River, Revere, actually in some places even larger losses than in Boston. Are you putting out any tools to help governors or mayors? Are they putting in calls to you to help them figure this out? So we will be releasing soon what we call the calculator that would do the math around, okay, a district would enter, okay, what's the percentage of kids that they're planning to provide tutors to? What's the percentage of kids that are showing up for summer school that would do that math, that that would just say, okay, are you in the right Ballpark. Do you right. have a plan that even on paper is right. enough? I mean, of course, 
even this is optimistic because it's going to be hard to run summer programs at the same quality as, you know, the pre-pandemic research was based on. But I guarantee you if the district doesn't have a plan that works on paper yeah. to cover these losses. Yeah. Then you're never going to actually be able to go after right. it. And what if you are the head of a community organization that could be helpful to kids? How how do you go about planning for being a resource to families and to kids in any particular city? So I think it would be calling on the mayor's office to have a plan. Show mm -hmm. us the plan. Like, we want to help, mm -hmm. but we need somebody to be developing a plan. Mm -hmm. and, and really, the execution piece of this is tutors working with kids. Tutors working with kids, teachers running small group sessions during the summer. Mm-hmm community organizations running enrichment activities during the summer because mm -hmm. the only way we're going to get kids to show up for mm -hmm. the academic programming is if there's opportunities to have fun too. So right. it can't just be about the academics during the summer, but it would be a range of activities. And is the key math and reading or is there more? So... We get to see the losses in math and reading. Yeah. Presumably, there are similar losses in everything, history and social science. Those losses are less visible. But I would also think that there's less of a cumulative nature to it. So, right. like, I would be prioritizing math and literacy and supplementing where I can, mm -hmm. you know, on some of the other subjects. One thing I feel like I didn't mention is just how... Parents' perception yeah. is not just puzzling. Yeah. It is a critical constraint on what districts can do. No superintendent is going to ask for potentially controversial things. For example? Like extending the school year. Like, oh. like using school vacation weeks for providing additional instruction. Tutors, parents love that idea. Mm -hmm. But... Not everything that schools are going to need to do will be without any kind of demand on parents' time or disruption to family plans. And for any of those things that would require changes in plans over the next couple of summers, district leaders are going to have a hard time proposing them as long as parents think things are fine. So somehow we've got to have a simultaneous effort of helping parents understand the magnitude of the loss. And I think that'll take all of us, like the mayor, the governor, others, talking about it. To be to be honest. To and, be upfront up about, about it. Right. Yeah. And in fact, right. like not like there are very few public agencies that will raise their hand to yeah. say, like, look, there's a major problem right. over here. You should look at my agency, because there, right. <laughs> there are alarm bells going off. Right. Instead, there's a tendency to want to paint a rosy picture on it. So the state, when the MCAS results came out, was talking mostly about the improvements since 2021. But the pandemic didn't start in 2020. Right, right. What's, what's happened since 2019. Yeah, yeah and, exactly. And so, like, there is a tendency yeah. to want to downplay crisis and identify, you know, the, the rosiest 
statistics. Well, that's because I was going to ask you, when I asked you the question about community leaders, I was at first going to say, okay, so if you're a parent, how do you figure this out? How much your kid needs? And then how do you implement it? But, you know, I don't know how that message ever gets to parents because there are so many roadblocks, right? Like your teacher would need to be delivering the message or the principal or the superintendent of schools or the school committee or the mayor, but none of them are really incentivized to give you bad news. And so they can earnestly work towards, you know, trying to correct for it as they understand it. And what you're saying right now is we're not even doing the math right. But the biggest problem here is that it's really hard to identify failure and this is not an easy thing to fix. This takes a ton of manpower, really. You know, this is all about one-to-one, one-to-small group tutoring for kids in order to bring them back where they were. And it's to find a couple of grades worth of lost kids that we graduated into the world, you know, not having fully prepared them. None of this is good news. Yeah. Public officials have no reason to be defensive about what No, happened. they didn't cause you know, the They pandemic. didn't cause the pandemic. <laughs> right. The losses are what they are. Well, you know what the problem is? We refused to identify this as a massive paradigm shift in real time. And if we had identified that and bought into it, then we could have been talking about, then it was not anybody's fault. Right. It just was. Yeah. Right? And so now there's this we kind of don't want to see right. what, and, we, what and, we've left behind. And everybody is eager to get back to some semblance of normal. Right. I, you can't blame them totally. for, for that. But what I hope most parents realize is getting back to normal will mean sealing in these losses that right. we've seen. Right. And normal won't be enough. Normal should not be the goal. Like right. somehow we need to figure out how to scale up these catch-up efforts and not just leave it to individual educators to figure it out on their own. There needs to be a coordinated effort. effort. Are you seeing like bright, bright lights anywhere in the country where districts are really focused on it? So we're working with 12 districts that all launched major catch-up efforts last year during 21-22. And I and a set of colleagues have been working with them to try to figure out which of those things were and weren't. Mm-hmm. And what we saw was that even the districts that tried to launch major high-dosage tutoring programs really struggled to do it. So mm-hmm. like high-dosage tutoring, a lot of people cite that research where if you provide students with help three times a week – by a tutor who's working it with groups of students of three or fewer mm-hmm. for the whole school year. That's 36 weeks times three times per week or 108 tutoring sessions. When you do that intensive intervention, you get about, prior research suggests, you get about a year's worth of additional growth. It's yeah. great. Yeah. But in the places that we've seen, nobody got close to yeah. that. Like in the districts that were doing high dosage tutoring, Mm. you know, the typical student was getting more like 30 hours, not 108. Right. And they're only serving like 5% of students. Again, just doing the math. Say if you were able to run a high dosage tutoring program that was equal to like the model that was tested Mm pre-pandemic. So three times a week for 36 weeks, but you only offered it to 5% of your students, you get 
one additional year for 5% of your students. In many districts, that's 120th of the loss. Right. And what we've seen is most districts, even when they try to do high dosage tutoring, can't get close. That's why I, I think, yes, we should be doing high dosage tutoring, but in pl- just given the state of the labor market and mm-hmm. given, I think it's going to be very hard to scale up tutoring to the scale that's going to be needed to you know, close the gaps. Which is why you need community partners, which is why we have to weave this into yeah. other spaces. Summer school. Places that kids are. Um, s- summer school, vacation academies. Yep. I think actually it, it's controversial to say it, but I think that many districts will have to go to a longer school year over the next couple of years if they're going to make up for losses of, of, of this size. You could certainly see a world in which, you know, there'd be lots of parents who would be advocates for that, though, right? It is a great resource to, like, a family where you have, you know, a head of the household is working or both parents are working. It's a great thing to have. I'm sure that there'll be some parents for whom it's a inconvenience because, yeah. the, you know, maybe they have plans over the summer or yeah. something. Yeah, but. But those for, probably aren't the kids. Well, those they, probably aren't the families. Who and, have right, the and huge it's not even the majority of yeah. probably not the majority of parents. So if 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 the parents that would value an extended school year could make their voices known, yeah, that might be easier for the superintendent to ask for it. Right, right. Because like there, the thing that people forget is that okay, we have the buildings. Mm-hmm. We have the teachers. Mm-hmm. We we have the family routines, the pickup and drop off routines. We we have a lot of the the infrastructures in place. Yeah. And of course, you have to pay people more to work yeah. a longer school year. You know, and probably at a higher wage rate than yeah. you, you know time and a half or yeah. even double time for the extra time. But it'll be a lot easier logistically to pull that off than to try to field a tutoring program of the same size to work with the same number of kids. Well, and the funding's there. I yeah, mean, that, that the was the point is there. That's of this, what the, like, it was the largest distribution of funding to public schools ever. Right. And districts need to revisit their plans now that we know a lot more about the yeah. magnitude of the loss and not say, okay, we already have a plan. We should go back to the plan and reprioritize the things that are generating additional instructional time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, here, like, you know, in terms of districts, the question is not show me the money. The question is show me the makeup. Like, how, how are we going to reverse this, yes. this loss? And it's not, the lucky thing is, is that kids who are entering the system now are not suffering that loss. They're in school and they're on track. So we're talking about a segment of kids that we just have to take care of. That, yes. you know, we're done a great disservice to no fault of anyone, right? Like the yeah. paradigm shift, you know, everyone reacted as best they could, but there was a significant amount of learning loss. And so we have to fix that and we have the money to fix right. that. And, you know, there might be listeners out there who might think, oh gosh, like I don't have any school age prob- kids. This yeah. isn't my problem. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah. Because here's why. It's because the school closures, which were definitely connected to the learning losses, were public health measures taken on all of our behalves. Yeah, right. And so they benefited. Right. You know, like whether or not people agreed with the decisions or not, their duly elected or appointed officials made those decisions on their behalf partially. Right. So they've taken the benefit and now they're going to 
Right. Like we can't stiff kids with the bill. No. Like, you know, if we allow these losses to become permanent, what right. we've done is we've stiffed kids. We've put on kids the bill for well, we've stolen public health from measures. Them, really. Yeah. Yeah. If we don't rectify it. Yeah. Well, that's a fun place to land. <laughs> but you do, but you do. This is not actually a hopeless story because the there are numbers, the resources. Right. There's the money's there. This is really about leadership. Yes. You know, can mayors across the country, can our mayor, can the superintendent, can school committee, you know, pull together and say, okay, here's what our we have huge community assets, just talking about Boston exactly. specifically. We should be able to knock this one out of the park. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for your time. All right. Thanks, Jill. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Tom Kane. His research sheds light on the significant impacts of learning loss across the country and highlights the need for urgency and creativity in helping today's students recover and thrive. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.